0: Genesis 31. Before we read from Genesis, I want to catch you up a bit on what's going on. Um, It's a long chapter. We're going to read from verses 17 to 45. We can't even read the whole chapter this morning. So I want to give you a picture of where we're at and where we're going. So Jacob is kind of the main character of our story now. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. Um, He's the one who will get renamed Israel later on and have a whole, you know, host of People come from him, the whole tribes of Israel. And Jacob has left the land of Canaan, where he was born, what we will later call the promised land. He's left Canaan, kind of running from his brother and kind of looking for a wife. So he goes way up north, back to where Abram and Sarai set out from, Paddan Aram or Haran. And he's uh, welcomed into the household of a guy called Laban. Laban's got two daughters. Both of them end up marrying Jacob. So, Jacob came in search of a wife. Now he's got uh, two wives, two concubines, eleven sons, and a daughter. So it's been a very eventful 20 years. Uh, there he worked six—sorry, seven years for each wife. If it sounds weird to you, it should sound weird to you. you. Shouldn't work for wives. He worked seven years for each wife and six years for the flocks. And they went from being treated like kin and welcomed in his family to being treated like hired servants or slaves. Even Lot, uh, Laban's daughters say in verse 15, they say, Are we not regarded by him, our father, as foreigners? For he sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. So then in the beginning of Genesis 31, like that's, that's where we get to here. The beginning, God shows up to Jacob and says, Well, it's time to go. He says in verse 3, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So this is a story of the return journey from Laban way up in the north, in what will later be Assyria in Mesopotamia, back down to Canaan in the promised land. So we'll pick up our story in chapter 31, starting in verse 17, and we'll read through verse 45. Starting in verse 17. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired, and pat on a ram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father, Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he had intended to flee. He fled with all that he had. "'and arose and crossed the Euphrates "'and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. "'When it was told Laban on the third day "'that Jacob had fled, "'he took his kinsmen with him "'and pursued him for seven days "'and followed close after him "'into the hill country of Gilead. "'But God came to Laban the Aramean "'in a dream by night and said to him, "'Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, "'either good or bad. "'And Laban overtook Jacob.' Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and didn't tell me, so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you've gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, and into Leah's tent, and into the the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Laban became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you've changed my wages ten times. And if the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac, had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine, but uh, what can I do this day for these my daughters, or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as the people of God are on their homeward journey to the promised land, their old master Laban does absolutely everything in his power to get them back, to keep them around. And he tells three big old lies. And these lies that Laban tells are actually really important to confront because they're the same lies that we hear all the time from our old master. So we're going to look at the three lies and how they apply to Jacob and his family first. And then we're going to think about how they apply to Jesus and his family, which is us. So, lie number one. I've been a kindly master. I'm a good master. I'm so benevolent. In verses 26 through 28, I won't read it again, but you can look uh, there in your Bibles. La- Jacob's, uh, I'm sorry, Laban's tone is... Um, wheedling, if I can put it that way, right? Jacob has been, um, Laban, slip of the tongue, has been nothing but awful to his family. He's sold his daughters. He's tricked Jacob. He's changed the wages. He's not a good guy. He's not been kind. But here he is basically gaslighting them and saying, you know, oh, I just would long to kiss my children and grandchildren whom I love so much. You know how good I am to you. Why wouldn't you talk to me about your problems? Well, of course, he hasn't been good to him. He's playing the doting grandfather and the benevolent master who would have you know, sent them off with a party. And don't you believe it for a minute. We know that that's not who Laban was. He's been you know, a cheat and a deceiver. We thought Jacob was a trickster. Then he met Laban. And whenever Jesus rescues his family from serving the father of lies and begins leading us homeward, we will get confronted with the same lie. Our enemy would love for us to look back over the fence and go, man, that grass was green, wasn't it? Our enemy would love for us to think um, non-Christians have the most fun. That's wrong. It's a tragedy when we When we think life was better before Jesus, it was so much easier. Or if we think, you know, maybe if I didn't have this whole church and Christianity thing, things would go smoother for me. The devil, our enemy, would love us to think that. But he's not as obvious as Laban is. He doesn't come, you know, pretending to be a grandfather with Werther's originals by his rocking chair and a cardigan. He's much more subtle than that. But he implants those same sorts of things thoughts in our world, it's in the air we breathe in, that we think, this is hard, this would be easier if I wasn't doing this anymore. Well, don't you believe it for a minute. Laban's daughters remembered. You know, they said, he treated us like foreigners. We were strangers to him, not children. And Jacob remembered, he said, he's done nothing but cheat me and he changed my wages 10 times. And so you and I have to do what they're doing and remember that the promises and attraction of sin are empty promises and cheap attraction. Surely we can remember what it's like last week, last year, last decade to go grab that thing that we've really wanted and how awful we feel afterward, right? And then we think, well, maybe the next time I'll feel a little better. Maybe the next time I, I do that thing that I know I ought not do that doesn't honor Christ, maybe then I'll feel satisfied and we'll be like the leech's daughters that we read about last week. The bread of the house of the slavery may look good, but it will turn to ash in our mouths. Proverbs 5, Solomon's presenting the temptations of sin and death as an alluring woman. And she says, you know, come, come on, I've I've got perfume on, I'm looking good, doors wide open, come on in. And Solomon says, wisdom knows that that's the house of death. That's the smooth way that leads to the grave. So if you're a follower of Jesus, do not turn back to the house of slavery from which you came. You will be tempted, but don't. The Israelites, if you think about the Exodus, we're going to talk about the Exodus more later on. Think about the time the Israelites have been freed from Egypt. They're wandering in the desert, in the wilderness. And they complain to Moses and say, Why did you bring us out of slavery in Egypt? Is it because there weren't enough graves? And they said, You know what we miss? Cucumbers. <laughs> Send us back to Egypt so we can have cucumbers. And God met their longing with bread from heaven. That's extravagant. And God fills that same longing in us with something better than cucumbers and better than bread from the house of slavery. He gives us the bread of life. So part of what we do when we take the Lord's table is we come where the, we pick up these things, just normal bread, right? Normal bread, normal juice or wine. But we preach to our souls with it as we break it that the bread of life was broken to set me free. Like this blood was spilled to free me. Why would I go back to the thing that took the life of the one that we hold so dear? So when the enemy comes and says, I've been a kindly master, come on back. You take him to the Lord's table and you show him what a good master really does for his people. That's what you do. That's lie number one. Lie number two is I can harm you. In verse 29, we see the second of Laban's lies. He says, it's in my power to do you harm. That's what happens. He catches up to them with a kind of a small army and says, I can make this really rough for you. But Jacob was already equipped with everything he needed to confront this lie because he said earlier in verse seven, He said, your father has cheated me and changed my way just 10 times, but God did not permit him to harm me. Then Laban says, it's in my power to do you harm. Really, Laban? Laban can make life uncomfortable for Jacob, right? No doubt. Um, But the power doesn't lie in Laban's hands. It's in God's hands. God has to permit him. Laban's on a leash. And the truth is, the enemy's been saying this lie, I can harm you, to God's people since the beginning. Like all of Satan's lies, there's just enough truth in it to be kind of believable. That's how he gets past our defenses, which is why 1 Peter 5, uh, 8 through 10 is on the screen. Let me read that to you now. This is what Peter says. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil... Prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So it's a real threat. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, and after you've suffered a little while, just a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen. And establish you. In other words, the devil cannot really make you suffer because the serpent's been defanged. Every every ounce of suffering and sorrow that he throws at your life, God says, I'm turning that one for good. There is no part of your life, no matter how painful, that God will not turn for his glory. And your joy, not one small sliver of your life goes unredeemed in Christ. So can he really harm you? I've shared this story before, but it's one of my favorites. I don't really get tired of it, so I'm going to do it again. Um, it's a story of one of my favorite preachers named John Chrysostom, lived about mm, 1,500 years ago. John Chrysostom. And he was... Um, He was preaching, he he was an incredible preacher, we have a bunch of his sermons still today. He was preaching in this region that had an empress who was not a Christian, and the empress's name was Eudoxia, and uh, the irony of that name, that's a very Christian name of good glory in Greek, but Empress Eudoxia got very irked at John Chrysostom's preaching, so she has him arrested, and she calls him to come stand trial before him, and she threatens him to try to get him to stop. Here's what she said. If you don't stop preaching, I'll banish you. He replied, You cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. She said, Okay, I'll kill you. He replied, Nope, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. She said, I will take away your treasures. He said, No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. She said, I'll drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left. And he replied, no, you cannot. I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there's nothing you can do to harm me. See? If the sun has set you free, you are free indeed. No real harm can come to you in Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 27 to 29, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them from my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to plunder them out of the Father's hand. So, Christians, no sin no failure, no shortcoming, no stupid mistake can rob you from Jesus. And if you feel tempted to believe that the enemy can truly harm you, then take him to the cross. You take your own soul to the cross because at the cross, the enemy unloaded his full clip. He gave it everything he had. He committed there the worst evil and atrocity the world has ever seen. He killed God's son. And that worst evil in the world, God turned to the greatest joy of the universe. Yeah. So if God did that with the worst, he certainly will do that with our sorrows. He cannot harm you. Not in Christ. That's the second lie. The third lie is a little bit longer. Uh, it's the last point. Line number three, all you see is mine. This comes from verse 43. Look with me there. Laban says, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. Pardon me. At this point in the story, though, is is just a legal fiction. Laban's already lost. But I'm sure that for Rachel and Leah and the grandchildren, right, it probably caused some confusion, some doubt, some cognitive dissonance, some tension. <laughs> and when we hear that lie as Christians, I think it has the same kind of effect on us. And what I mean is, um, what I'm really trying to get at is Christian assurance assurance of salvation, how do I know? Like, man, I've made some real mistakes after I supposedly came to Christ, and I thought I was supposed to get better. How do I know I'm really saved? Christian assurance. That fear has plagued Christians for 2,000 years. It's not going away, and none of us are above it. Uh, Most of us have wrestled with it. If you haven't, you probably will. So I want to unpack from this text for you, two perspectives on Christian assurance that I really hope will bring you joy and comfort. So the first thing I want to talk about are the legal demands that are being made, the legal demands. Laban brings a lawsuit. Now, it doesn't look like a lawsuit in English, but in ancient Mesopotamia, this is the way this works. He brought an actual legal Confrontation, a lawsuit to Jacob in front of all these witnesses. And that's why it ends with a treaty, a non aggression pact, a covenant and stones to be witnesses, right? So here's how the lawsuit works. Uh, the, the premise of the, of the suit is that Laban says, All these things are mine. These are my children. These are my grandchildren. These are my flocks. They don't rightly belong to you. That's the premise. And the kind of linchpin of it all is he says, but also there's an accusation, and that is you stole my household gods. And so he searches for the household gods. And if in the lawsuit, if he finds the household gods, then his premise is vindicated. In other words, if Laban had looked in just the right spot and found his gods, then the daughters and the grandchildren and the flocks would have had to go back with him, right? He would have won the lawsuit, but he did not find the gods. So Jacob was vindicated. In other words, it was never about the gods that were stolen, these idols. It was never about that. It was about the family. And Jacob's claim to Rachel and Leah and Zilha and Bilha and all of these children was vindicated. Jacob wins, Laban loses. The demands of the law have been satisfied. And of course, we're not in slavery to Laban. Uh, He's been dead a very long time. But we were slaves of sin and death. Romans makes that very clear. Without Christ, we're not free people. We're slaves. And the law then is clear. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? Then we've got to die. That's the law. That's justice. So here's how God wins the lawsuit through Jesus and frees us from the law's demands. He unites us by faith to the Son of God who died and rose again. God unites us by faith to the Son of God who died and rose again. So that's one of the things that baptism points to, right? Is we died with him, so we'll be raised with him. Here's what Paul says in Romans 6, verses 6 through 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. You understand what that means? If you've put your trust in Jesus, then The old you, the fleshly, worldly you, died on Golgotha 2,000 years ago. So when the law comes with its debt collection to you, you can say he doesn't live here anymore. He's dead. He can't pay you back. Someone else has paid for it. Jesus satisfied the law's demands for you. If you trust him, if you will receive that, then death has no claim on you. And God wins the lawsuit, and you get free. So take that fear. (laughs) When the enemy comes to you and says, You've sinned, you don't deserve to live, then you take yourself to the cross and to the empty tomb. And you preach to yourself and say, Here is where my Savior died. And I died with him. And then you walk to the empty tomb and go, Here's proof that he's alive. And lives in me. And I will live with him forever. And I have been vindicated. There is no more lawsuit against you. Jesus has satisfied the law's demands. Do you see what that does for your Christian assurance of salvation? It totally changes the top of conversation from what you've done, what you think and what you believe and how good you are at it to how thorough Jesus satisfied the law's demands on your behalf. He's a complete Savior. The second thing, the last thing that I want to talk to you about in regards to assurance is the plunder. The plunder. I don't know if you've picked it up, but this story is actually an Exodus story. Uh, It's laying down the pattern for the Exodus. And when you hear the word Exodus, you know we talked earlier about the Prince of Egypt, maybe that's what you think of. Uh, you're thinking the Israelites being freed from Egypt and the Red Sea parts, and they go through and all of that. Uh, and that, that is what that usually points to. But the word just means departure. The word exodus means departure. And it picks up this technical meaning referring to the specific departure of Israel from Egypt uh, in the Bible as we go on. But this story, some 400 plus years before the exodus from Egypt, is already teaching us what the exodus looks like. So the people are in servitude in a foreign land, right? Here we're in Paddan Aram, later we'll be in Egypt. Those are like polar opposites on the map. Then the people flee and their old master pursues them. Here Laban comes after them with armed forces. There uh, Pharaoh comes after with armed forces. In both cases, they plunder their old master when they flee, and then, in both cases, God judges decisively in their favor. The lawsuit is settled when Pharaoh is drowned with his army in you know, the Red Sea. And the lawsuit is settled when Laban doesn't find the household gods and they set up pillars as a witness to the covenant in our story in Genesis 31. So this Exodus pattern is laying the groundwork for what we're going to find in the next book of the Bible, Exodus. And that Exodus pattern is laying the groundwork for the gospel. I'm sure I've mentioned this many times. I love this fact. In, in Luke's gospel, Jesus goes up onto the Mount of Transfiguration, right? So this is before he's died. He goes up and brings a few disciples with him and his glory is revealed and he, his face shines and his, his clothes shine and Moses and Elijah show up <laughs> and Luke writes, they talked with Jesus about his exodus. You see, the, the death and resurrection of Christ, where his people are united to him and go into this foreign land of death and are freed from it and brought to the promised land by faith. That's the Exodus that all the Exodus story patterns in the Bible were always pointing to. So, anyway, plunder. <laughs> uh, in every Exodus pattern story, the house of slavery is plundered, right? Here's where this happens in in our story. It's not actually the gods. You might think Rachel stole the household gods. That's not the point. It's in verse 20. In English, your Bible says, Jacob tricked Laban. In Hebrew, it says, Jacob stole the heart of Laban. It's important. He stole Laban's heart. What did Laban love most? Probably money. Money. How did Laban get money and wealth? Through pawning off his daughters. He didn't have any more money. He devoured it all, Rachel says. But he's got his girls, and so he's got an income source. You hear how cold and calculating that is? In other words, Jacob stole Laban's heart when he stole his family, when he left with the family. Those are the things that laban really wanted the family itself and what jacob plunders then from laban will become the 12 tribes of israel the family of god the household of god that's what jacob plunders now israel when they leave egypt 400 plus years later they plunder all kinds of gold and silver and clothing and all kinds of things now the plunder ends up becoming two things one, they, what do they make with it? Golden calf. And they worship it, right? Moses comes down the mountain, sees it, gets angry, grinds it up into powder and makes them drink it, which is crazy. That's not the point, that's just interesting. <laughs> uh, but most of the treasure, most of that plunder, the gold and the silver and the clothing and all of that, it goes into building the tabernacle. The Beth-el, the house of God. And then it goes into building the temple. The temple in Solomon's reign, another centuries down the road. In other words, first Jacob's plunder from the house of slavery builds God's family, and then Israel's plunder from the house of slavery builds God's temple. And I'm telling you that Jesus' plunder from hell builds God's family and God's temple too. Are you with me in that? Mark uh, chapter three, verse 27, Jesus says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man, then he may indeed plunder his house. Jesus' earthly ministry began by him binding the strong man, the master of the house of slavery, when he overcame the temptation in the wilderness. And then he entered that house of death where we all pretend to live and be free. And he started rescuing us. He plundered the strong man. He freed everyone enslaved to sin who would follow him. So Jesus is the despoiler of death and the harrower of hell, and you are the plunder. And he stole Satan's heart. What does that do for assurance? Well, Jesus' plunder becomes his temple. His church family he gave everything for that would he let go of it lightly does Jesus permit living stones to be removed from his temple and given back to the enemy does it depend on you to plunder yourself no No, it does not Ephesians 4, Paul quotes um, Psalm 68, 18 and says that he ascended on high leading a host of captives giving gifts to men. And then he goes on to say, by the way, when it says he ascended, he's talking about Jesus who first descended from heaven to earth, this realm of the dead and plundered hell here, and then led out the freed captives. That's us giving gifts to men. And then he goes on to say, Ephesians 4, read it this afternoon, it's glorious. You know what those gifts are? Some of them are prophets, apostles, teachers, preachers, evangelists. They're for the building up of his church. That's why he plundered death, is to build a beautiful family and a beautiful house. And if Jesus cares about that, about his family, that much, if he put that much on the line for you, then your salvation's not in your hands. Praise God for that. Jesus has plundered hell. He has freed the captives, which makes you the family of God. You are the temple of his Holy Spirit. Not because of how much goodness you have, or how strong you are, but because of how good and how strong your liberator is. Let me pray for us as we prepare for the Lord's table. Jesus, I praise you for your strength and your might and your care for your people, that you, you satisfied all the demands made against us, We praise you and love you for it. We praise you for plundering hell and death. You are a wonderful Savior. And we put all of our fears and our doubts now squarely in your hands and ask for your comfort. I pray for these people that you will comfort them for your glory. Amen.